All right, Wrestling with Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton, and we are here digging deeper again into Revelation chapter 14. This week we look at verses 6 through 13 and the angelic messengers that God gives to us in the end. So let's look at these messengers, verses 6 through 13 of Revelation chapter 14. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. All right, we start off with verses 6 and 7, which we know as the first reading for Reformation Sunday in the Missouri Synod Lectionary. And as we see, this has great implications on why this is chosen as the first reading for that day. Uh, Dr. Kretzman, in his popular commentary, writes, This passage has been understood by Lutheran commentators, and undoubtedly correctly, to apply to Dr. Martin Luther and the Reformation. For he, as the angel of the Lord, different from the other angels spoken of in the previous chapters, brought back and preached the eternal gospel of the justification of a poor sinner through the merits of Jesus Christ alone by faith. In the very midst of the kingdom of Antichrist, he preached the gospel, and with such divine zeal and power that many thousands of captives were filled with joy over the deliverance here proclaimed. So here we have this first angel in Revelation 14, and not necessarily the historical continual idea of this is where we are, but this is a proper understanding of what this represents. And as a Lutheran, I have a hard time not seeing Luther and the Reformation in this. The angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Because it was Luther who sought to have the language of the church moved to the language of the people and not simply everything in Latin, but also it is that great gospel message we have in verse 7. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. This definitely does sound like Luther and the Reformation. So I personally think this is a great application of this. Is this possibly the, the only one? No. And it's not the only possible one either, but this does make the most sense. But let's look back again, Dr. Brighton in his commentary on the angel flying directly overhead. 
was John conscious of the fact that the eagle flying in midheaven in 8.13 and the angel flying in midheaven here in 14.6 might have reminded some of his hearers of the constellation called Pegasus by the Romans. Roman lore envisioned a future great year when all the constellations would return to their original positions. It was the Thunderbird, the Roman winged horse Pegasus, that stood at the beginning of the equatorial constellational sequence, positioned in midheaven at the center of the sky. Now should the Thunderbird or Pegasus take a position in midheaven once more, then the stars of the universe would all occupy the positions they once had at the time of creation. Such a restoration marked the great year, when all the stars returned to the place from which they had first set forth and at long intervals restore the original configuration of the whole heaven. This is from Cicero's Republic, Book 6, Chapter 24. Also, Brighton points out, the eternal gospel is the eternal message of God, of both judgment and grace, based on the person and saving work of Jesus Christ. And this eternal message has a reference point, the second coming of Christ, when he will both judge the unbelievers and deliver the believing followers. So we have this great message brought out. Fear God and give him glory. Now I want to take a minute just to look at these two phrases throughout the scriptures. Fear God. We go back to Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praises endure forever. Deuteronomy 4, verses 9 and 10, Moses says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. This is Moses talking about being at Mount Sinai, at Horeb, and God coming to them, and to remind them of all the things that they have seen, all the things that they have heard, and to pass it on to their children. That is a fundamental understanding of the fear of God. And then Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So it's not just a basic understanding of passing on the faith that has been delivered to you, but also the fact that this gift multiplies throughout, which is why we are called immediately to give him glory. Just like in John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And then the next chapter in verses 7 and 8, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It's this idea of taking that nourishment of the Lord as Jesus is talking about being the true vine and we being the branches. And if we abide in him and abide in his word, we bear the fruit. We multiply what he has given to us. And this is how we give God glory, by sharing that message as we do on this podcast, as we do as we get ever closer to the season of Christmas, as we go through this Advent season, that we continue to spread that word in preparation. 
All right, let's move on to the second angel. In verse 8, another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Dr. Brighton focuses on Babylon being a symbol of the two enemies in their most deadly form. When the harlot sits on the beast, that is, when the false religious entities, and in particular apostate Christianity, attempt to use or work with the existing political and social powers to destroy the Church of Christ. And again, we have this idea of the way things were in the Holy Roman Empire at the time of the Reformation, where, yes, you had it set up in the Holy Roman Empire, where you had seven electors. Three of them were from the church. But those three members of the church were not to be there for the main political idea, to bring the word of God in. But what happens is they become three of the most powerful, most prolific landowners in the Holy Roman Empire because they simply take it over from the church. And they are no longer worried about the word of God. They are worried about their power, their position as an elector. So yes, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, even among the Holy Roman Empire. But going into this a little further, Isaiah chapter 14, uh, verses 11 through 17. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? This idea of this day star, this sun of dawn in the ESV is even in the days of Isaiah, this idea of the Antichrist figure that comes about as the ruler of things, and especially the rulers of the entire world, as you saw in the Roman Empire in the first century, as well as the other empires that preceded them, and even as we try to gain certain ideas of that again, even in modern times. Ecumenius says, by Babylon he is referring to the confusion and arbitrarily random trials of the present life, for confusion is the meaning of Babylon, and to the manic stupefaction of those who worship idols. And the city is magnified with names, being called by them the inspired city. But were you to consider the physical Babylon itself, you would not fall down before the sight of you. But by the wine of the wrath of her fornication, he refers to the city's apostasy from God. As it is written, you have destroyed everyone that goes a-whoring from you. Psalm 73, 27. Such fornication entails a darkness of the mature reason for who, possessing a sound mind, would choose to worship wood and stones and call forth the wrath of God. Again, this idea of the confusion, because Babylon gets its name from Babel where we have the confusion of languages when the tower is built. But now, yes, the question there becomes, with mature reason, possessing a sound mind, 
Who would choose to worship wood and stones and call forth the wrath of the true God? I mean, this is Isaiah's issue many times over. But this is what Ecumenius says is coming about here as we talk about fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. But now, of course, we get into this and we have to talk to the dispensationalists for a minute. And Dr. McGee, when he talks about this, says the city of Babylon will evidently be rebuilt during the Great Tribulation period. If you have my book on Isaiah, you will see that I deal with this probability in chapter 13. I believe that ancient Babylon will be rebuilt, though not at the same location, and that judgment upon it, which is predicted in the book of Isaiah, is yet to come. So Dr. McGee and uh, Dr. Jenkins and Dr. LaHaye, after them in the Left Behind series, yes, they have the city of Babylon being rebuilt, the kingdom of Babylon being restored in the Great Tribulation period, because they have to figure out, okay, well, we're talking about Babylon here. And we can't take this symbolically because there's nothing in here symbolic. Everything is literal. And again, we have that whole issue throughout all of the book of Revelation. But he says there are things that are in Isaiah chapter 13. Before this text that I had earlier on the rising of the day star and the fall of him as he fell from the great lofty heights that he had imagined for himself to die like everybody else. He says there are things in that in those chapters that are yet to be fulfilled. But every prophecy in the Bible has been fulfilled except one. And that is the prophecy of Jesus' second coming. That is the only thing we are waiting for in this life. So that's the second angel. In verse 9, we get to the third angel. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So we go back to Psalm 74 in the Septuagint. Verse 9 says, For there is a cup in the hand of the Lord, full of unmingled wine, and he has turned it from side to side, but its dregs have not been fully poured out. All the sinners of the earth shall drink them. So even in the Psalms, we have this picture of the cup of the wrath of God that has not quite been poured out fully yet. It will be poured out in the last days, and it will be poured out eternally upon those who receive the mark of the beast and worship him and do all the things that God has said not to do. Ecumenius says that the idea of being poured out unmixed is utterly poured out. For the wrath of God is poured out along with his benevolence and goodness, wholly poured out. For there is not an equal measure of wrath and goodness, but the benevolence of God is many times greater. Indeed, were the righteous anger and the goodness of God in equal measure, no one would be able to withstand it. So we have this idea that, yes, God's wrath is poured out right now upon the earth. And it has been for ever since the fall of man. But it has not been poured out in full force, like we are talking about here, unmingled, unmixed, that 
It is poured out in full strength. Dr. Brighton says that eternal suffering is a result of God's anger, meted out as undiluted wine here in verse 10. That is anger that is not tempered with any mercy. At the conclusion of this world's history, God will show no mercy in his judgment against those who are adherents of the beast. Wine in its full strength is undiluted with water. Wine was an intoxicant and is often used as a metaphor for the judgment of God. For example, in Jeremiah 25, 15-16, the prophet is told to take from Yahweh this cup of the wine, the wrath, and make the nations drink it so that they are intoxicated and drunkenly stagger about. In Psalm 75, 7 and 8, as we just read a minute ago from the Septuagint, God judges, he makes the wicked drink the cup of such intoxicating wine, even its dregs. The venerable bead has a great point here that the saints who reign with the Lord are always able to observe the punishment of the wicked so that they might give the greater thanks to their Redeemer and sing forever the mercies of the Lord. For the torments of the wicked that are seen do not distress those who are in agreement with the just judge, just as the rest of Lazarus that was seen was able to give no refreshment to the rich man who was buried in the flames. Luke 16, 23-24. So we have this picture of the fact that even in heaven, we will see the torments of those in hell. And it's not going to be something that brings us sorrow, that brings us something out of the glory that we are supposed to have. And this is one of those things that it is a hard thing to understand because we talk about elsewhere in Revelation that there is no sorrow in heaven, that there is no pain in heaven. But if we see the torments of those in hell, how is it that we aren't? But again, that is the issue that we have, is that we can't fathom it. Uh, Leon Morris quotes uh, J.P. Love from the Layman's Bible Commentaries on this verse. Uh, Christians who suffered for their faith did so in the presence of crowds of onlookers. Ultimately, their tormentors will be punished in the presence of the more august spectators, in keeping with many other scenes of this book where the deepest sting that bitter conscience is dealt is that it must suffer while utter purity is looking on. So that he takes it from the other end, very much like the rich man in the parable of rich man and Lazarus, where he is even more tormented by being able to see up into Abraham's bosom and to see the rest that Lazarus has for his righteous life. And so this is one of those difficult pictures that we can't quite understand, but that... The saints in heaven viewing the torments in hell cause them to have even greater joy in their presence before the king, whereas the souls being tormented in hell, apparently, I guess, part of that torment is being able to see the joys of heaven and know that they are missing out and are never going to be able to be there. I mean, it makes... A bit of sense, but it's one that we don't necessarily grapple with very often. Andrew of Caesarea talks about the smoke arising from them. Oh, we must understand the smoke to be either the sighing of those being tormented, which arises from below along with their lamentation, or the smoke that comes from the fire that torments the fallen. It says that it goes up forever and ever. And by this we learn that even as the bliss of the righteous is everlasting, so also is the torment of the sinners. The question was asked by one of my confirmands 
for the All Saints Day sermon, will there be an end of the torment of those in hell? And the answer is easily no. Just as there is no end to the joys that we look forward to in heaven, there is no end to the torments. There is no annihilation of hell. There is no restoration of bringing everybody back into heaven, whether they were good or bad, because that is nowhere in the Bible. The Bible talks about everlasting life and everlasting death. Those are the two options. Neither one of them have an end. Therefore, they are everlasting. All right, let's look at these last two verses here for this week. Verses 12 and 13. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Dr. Brighton points out that a godly characteristic of the saints is their patient endurance in their deference to God's judgment and his timetable of executing it. In Revelation 13, 9 to 10, they wait for God to avenge their blood, just like in chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, and to strike down those who have blasphemed the gospel in God's holy name, as we see in chapter 11, verses 7 to 13, chapter 13, verse 6, and chapter 16, verses 9 through 21. They do not take into their own hands the execution of this judgment, though they participate in its announcement. Hebrews 10, 30-31, Revelation 10, 11, and then Luke 9, 51-55. The faithfulness of Jesus is the cause of the believer's salvation. And the faith of Jesus in Revelation 14, 12, and in Romans 3, which have genitive construction similar to that of here in Revelation 14, refers first of all to his faithfulness, then also to the believer's faith in Jesus. By faith, the saints cling tenaciously to Christ amid temptations and persecutions, which pressure them to worship the beast. Promasius says in the third century, the Lord says, he who endures to the end will be saved, Matthew 10, 22. And the apostle says, you have need of endurance, Hebrews 10, 36. So also in this passage, it says that the endurance of the saints consists in this that those who persevere to the end escape the fellowship of the beast and the mark of its name. Now we get into one of those great verses from All Saints Day, from many Christian funerals, which we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, verse 13, where it says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Dr. Kretzman says, Those that die in the Lord are those that remain steadfast in his word and faith until the end, whether this end be that of a quiet death or that of martyrdom. With their death, they enter immediately into the bliss which is prepared for them. There is no purgatory, no soul sleep, in the sense of the term as used by modern false teachers. The soul is in the happiness of heaven, and the body will there be reunited with it on the last day. Uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux says, Not those alone who die for the Lord like the martyrs, but without doubt those who also die in the Lord as confessors are blessed. There are two things, as it seems to me, which make death precious, the life which precedes it and the cause for which it is endured. By the mercy of God, you are beginning to live again, not to sin, but to righteousness, not to the world, but to Christ, knowing that to live to the world is death, and even to die in Christ is life. So St. Bernard even talks about this does not have to be people who die for the Lord, not just the martyrs, but all of us who, whether we have a martyr's death or we just simply quietly go about our death 
having lived a life of faith. Both are blessed. Andrew Caesarea says, The voice from heaven does not bless all the dead, but only those who die in the Lord, who have died to the world, and so carry about the dying of Christ in the body and suffer with Christ. For these persons, the departure from the body is truly a rest from their labor. Moreover, the obedience of their works is the reason for their unfading crowns and the rewards of glory that are the prizes given in great measure to those who prevail in the contest that the contestants of Christ our God endure to the end against invisible powers. For the suffering of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to those who please God, as the Apostle says in Romans 8.18. It is necessary also that we who yearn for such glory should pray unceasingly to God, saying, Incline our hearts, O God, to your testimonies, and turn our eyes from every vanity, and enter not into judgment with your servants, for no living creature will be righteous before you. Psalm 143, verse 2. Rather visit us with your bountiful mercies, for the might and the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours, namely of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now and forever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Now, as I said, this is a verse often used in funerals. But Dr. McGee, our great dispensationalist friend, argues that this is not fit for any funeral before the Great Tribulation period. He argues that this verse, especially since it says from now on, limits the blessings of the dead to those who came to faith during the Great Tribulation. So Dr. McGee would say to his congregations, although he has uh, gone to be with the Lord, as far as I can tell from his faithful proclamation of the rest of the scriptures throughout his Bible ministry 35 years ago. But he would say even his death is not blessed in this verse because he did not come to faith in the Great Tribulation period. He did not come to faith after the rapture. It is only those who come after. And again, this whole idea with the rapture is what makes that generation so great? What makes that generation so special? Whether it's the saints that get brought out in the rapture, or it's the idea that those who die, those who come to faith in the rapture and then die for their faith during the tribulation, that they are more blessed than you and I are. I don't get it. And like I said, Dr. McGee died 35 years ago, so I can't ask him. I can only look through the books and his arguments that he makes, and he does not make a very great argument other than that we have to accept that the generation after the rapture, those who come to faith after that, are much better than you and I. And that I just can't deal with. But that is where we're going to end it today. Uh, we are almost done. We are three quarters of the way done through chapter 14 of Revelation. We'll come back next week during the Christmas season and finish up chapter 14, looking at the great, not only the angelic messengers that we have seen this week, but the angelic reapers that come at the end of the world. But until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton, thanking you for being here, wishing you a very Merry Christmas, and be in church. And since Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday, I am asking you, show your faithfulness to the Lord and be in church 
Be there Sunday morning for the service. Be there in the evening for the Christmas Eve services to hear the words of the angels, to hear the great proclamation of the gospel of Christmas, and then also be there Christmas Day. Don't let the ideas of the world and even some of the other evangelical Christians out there say, no, Christmas is for families. Yes, it is for family. It's for your church family. And if you don't have a church family, I encourage you to contact me, wrestlingwiththeology at gmail.com. Tell me where you are, and I will help find a faithful confessional congregation that is near you, that teaches the same way that I do on this podcast. So that not only from this podcast, but that by the local coming together with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you may be equipped to wrestle with the theologies around you now and always. Amen.